Thank you to this week's sponsor, Utah Homicide Survivors. They're a nonprofit here in Utah that provide free legal and social services for families of homicide victims statewide. If you don't know what a homicide survivor is, it's a family member of someone who has been the victim of murder. And they truly see these families in all the ways we talk about on this podcast with compassion by connecting with them. You can help these families by donating to Utah Homicide Survivors cause via Facebook or on their website, utahhomicidesurvivors.org. Welcome to ICU, a podcast where we advocate that compassion and connection save lives. They also make life pretty cool. I'm your host, Julie Lee. ICU. Welcome to the ICU podcast. This is episode 77, Lauren's Miracle. I'm trying really hard to play it cool, but let's be honest, I've always been pretty bad at that, <laughs> at being cool. So uh, let's just get this exciting news out there that I'm super excited to tell you about. Just over a week ago, I signed a contract with Cedar Fort Publishing and Media to write a book. It's so insane how it just all came to be, and it definitely has felt very meant to be. I have until June 1st to finish my manuscript, and then the book will be coming out in September, which I'm especially excited about because that means the book will be in store in time for Christmas shopping, so that'll be really fun. I'll tell you more about the book as time goes on, but just know that I'm writing it with the same rawness and hopefulness that I strive to have here on the podcast. It will be called ICU, and Cedar Fort will also be selling an ICU bracelet, which is so cool because my bracelet that says ICU is what inspired the name for this podcast, so it's pretty special. It's all been just very magical and surreal, and everything's just kind of fallen into place. Today's interview is with my new friend, Weston Brandon. He is a giant teddy bear. That's all I have to say. He's a special soul, and I'm not going to tell you his story because it's a lot more powerful coming from him. Wesson Brandon, welcome to the podcast. Will you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Like I said, my name is Wesson. I'm 24 years old now. I work up in Cottonwood Heights. Uh, like I said, I do sales for engineering software, 3D printers, things like that. I got one little boy, almost 11 months old now. Tell us a little bit about your son and about your wife. What happened with all of that? My late wife's name was Lauren. We were married six weeks after meeting each other. Wow. Which is really fast. We actually eloped in Vegas. Nice. <laughs> With just our parents there. And it was her idea. I kind of joke that we had two different... Pro- I proposed to her and then she proposed back to me and said we should do it way sooner than I was thinking. <laughs> I was like, whatever, let's do it. So we got married and then my wife, a lot of her childhood she spent in Texas in a little town called Cleburne. It's where she grew up. and I th- So she'd always wanted to go back to Texas and at least visit. She up and decided that we were going to move to Texas. And she said, well, when you come around to it, we'll move to Texas and... <laughs> So we moved to Texas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we had a miscarriage to start. So that kind of sucked to start. But then fairly quickly after that, within two or three months, uh, she was pregnant and this one stuck. Everything was going good. I, I worked my butt off at work and I got a promotion that I was looking for. So I was going to start making a lot more money so she could quit work and take care of the baby. And then she was at work. She was a pharmacy technician. And she, one day she just wanted to go to the bathroom and something was trying to come out. <laughs> yeah. And so she called me and she says, hey... Something's up. I don't know what's going on. And she went to the hospital to be checked out. They checked her out and they said, you're on bed rest until you have the baby. A week later, 
Obi was in there checking things out and said that he was kicking her fingers. And so he was coming out breach. I'm like, all right, we got to do an emergency C-section, get this kid out, call your husband. We're doing this now. We're not waiting for him. Luckily, my boss let me work from home while all this was going on. And she called me and said, get my butt up there. At the time, I drove an old 97 Dodge Cummins and it didn't go very fast. <laughs> and I topped that sucker out going up the freeway to get there. And I got there with seconds to spare before they pulled him out. He was tiny, you know, from his head to his butt could fit in my hand. Looked like an alien. That's not a Gerber baby right there. But <laughs> luckily for, for him, he was perfectly healthy. He just needed a little CPAP on his nose to give pressure. And to this day, he hasn't been sick once. Wow. Which I have sick. nephews that were born at 28 and 29 weeks, and that has not been the case. So that just blows my mind. Yeah. Two weeks after he was born, she had a pulmonary embolism. Your wife? Yeah. For a few days leading up to that, she had had little episodes where she felt like she couldn't catch her breath, but it usually went away pretty quick. And she had issues with anxiety and depression, and she was taking some medications for that. So she thought it was just little mini panic attacks or something like that, right. which with the stress of having a baby and having them come so early and all that was... We're both really stressed out, especially about how we were going to pay for all these bills that were, were sure. At least that's what I was thinking about being the provider, you know, thinking how I'm going to pay for this kid that's got to spend two or three months in the NICU now. So it was in the morning. I was working from home. She had another one of those episodes when she was sitting on the couch and I, I went and um, kind of helped her to calm down. Um, and she said she had to go to the bathroom. So I went back into my little office where my computer was and started working. All of a sudden I had this really strong feeling that I needed to be with her, wanted to be by her side for whatever reason. I didn't know why, so I just got up and I, I went walking in there just to check in on her. She was sitting on the toilet at the time having another one of these panic attacks, and I was there holding her, trying to, to get her to, to calm down and catch her breath. Really, I was trying to help her over to the shower to rinse off or something. She told me to call 911 because she thought something was wrong, so I did, and it was while I was on the phone with them that she died. You know, I, I don't know how long it took the EMTs to get there. It seemed pretty quick, but I did CPR on her until they got there. They put her on a stretcher, hooked some machine over the top of her that did CPR for them, and took off to the hospital. My in-laws were down there. They had sold their house and bought a big old RV that they wanted to travel around in, so... They just sold it and brought us a bunch of furniture, so they just happened to be there when all this happened, which was really fortunate. I called her mom immediately there. They booked it over there in their little pickup truck, and I hopped in with them, and we... Where was the, the baby? He was still in the hospital, in the oh, NICU. Oh, duh. We booked it over to the hospital, and social workers put us in this little waiting room, and we just kind of got periodic updates, and her mom has been a nurse for years and years. She's very familiar with all that worked in. ICUs worked in the hospital, so she knew kind of what was what was going on and, and what the rundown was. I remember when the social worker came in after a few minutes and to give us an update, and they said that they were still doing CPR. Her mom lost it, and she knew that it had been too long that she wasn't going to make it. I was still in a state of shock. I didn't really know what was what was going on, but a lot of my story and how I've come out of it has to do with my spirituality, my relationship with God. At that moment, I had a crisis of faith. The social worker took her mom and her dad out there to, to go see her, and I was left in there by myself. So I turned around and got down on my knees and I started praying. It probably wasn't the nicest prayer. I had had times in my life previously where I had found personal revelation, where I had had experiences with God through the scriptures and felt that he was telling me something based on what I had read. I told him, I said, more than any other time in my life, I need you to tell me something right now. And if you're really there and if all this is real, I need you to, to say something. There's an app on my phone. So I just opened it and just started 
I kind of closed my eyes and started clicking just to see just where randomly I would show up. And I remember the very first verse of that chapter, the first one that I saw, said something along the lines of, I perceive that you have questions or that you're troubled concerning, you know, the afterlife, essentially. And that was like a punch in the face. It felt in that moment like God was talking right to me. And the whole rest of that chapter talked about basically the, the spirit world and what happens there. That is not what I wanted to hear. I was hoping to open up to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead or some miracle like that for him to tell me, hey, your wife's going to be okay. You know, have faith. Go say a prayer over her. She'll be fine. Something like that. That's not what I got. So in that moment, I knew I was like, she's not going to make it. And after that, for the next 12 hours, I'm just sitting by her side and getting good news and then bad news and then good news and then worse news. Um, they finally got her heart rate somewhat stable, but it was pretty faint. Um, but her heart was beating on her own, but she was intubated. You know, she had a tube down her throat to breathe for her. But the doctor said, he's like, the, the amount of steroids and drugs that we've given her, if we gave them to you, you'd be passed out in your heart. It'd be beating a million miles an hour. And it's barely keeping her going. So we kept hoping for a miracle and hoping for a miracle. And some of the nurses said, you know, they, they had seen people wake up from this and be fine. Of course, the, the likelihood of that was next to zero. Eventually, the, the doctors and the nurses told us, like, yeah, she's he's really not going to make it. you got to start making some decisions right now. And nurses come in asking about organ donation because she had decided to be an organ donor that was on her license. And they needed my sign-off to, to do that. One of the very first miracles that we saw from this and I saw lots come from this. Uh, one of the first was there was a, a brother in one of our church congregations there locally. He had been on a waiting list for a kidney for quite some time. My bishop had been there for, for most of the day. He remembered this, and I don't know how, how it all went down, but eventually he showed up with with another gentleman and asked that if she was a match, of course, if everything lined up and it worked okay, would I be okay facilitating a direct donation to this man? And I said, yeah, sure. And I told the nurses that I, was like, I can't sign anything. There's too much going on. If I say it, do it. We wheeled her into the operating room and got all dressed up in scrubs. Me and her mom and her dad went in there and we said our final goodbyes and uh, they pulled the whatever IV that was giving her those steroids and within 10 seconds her heart stopped. And time of death was sometime after 2 o'clock in the morning on April 12th. Immediately after that, me and my parents drove up to the McKinney Hospital, which from there was 30, 45 minutes. And by then, my son was stable enough that I could hold him. I just went up there and held my son and slept in the chair for most of the rest of the night. Early that morning, it was probably 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, we went back to my house. When my, me and my parents, I was just sitting in the back seat when we pulled up. They were driving my car. I got out, and I remember looking at my house, looking at the front door. It's like it hit me like a semi-truck. This crap really just happened. I kind of lost it there, and I was an emotional wreck from then on. I think up to that point, it was all shock, and I was kind of dealing okay and just walking around like a zombie. And then we walked in the house, and I asked my parents to leave me alone for a second. They went in and sat on the couch, and I walked down the hall through our bedroom, and I walked into the bathroom and looked at where it had all happened. I really lost it then. I was in the bathroom by myself. I don't know. Again, I don't know how long. Could have been an hour that I was in there by myself. And I can't imagine what that must have been like for my mom to listen to through the walls, you know, to hear her son crying that hard for that long. My parents eventually went home and my in-laws stayed there and, and they stayed with me. And I worked kind of on and off from home a little bit, but ultimately my, my boss called me. He's like, obviously there's no way you can hit a quota 
right now for sales with what's going on. So they were gracious enough to let me step back. And coming back to that, the miracle that I was talking to you about, about the organ donation, that next day when I went up to the hospital again, I got a call from my bishop and he said they ran the tests on the kidney and, and everything and it wasn't a hundred percent match but it was like 90 percent and it was well within the boundaries that they have to give it a try i remember when he called me and, and told me that all of a sudden this feeling came over to me like this was supposed to happen and it was a really peaceful feeling even though i felt like crap i still felt really peaceful about it i knew god had a direct hand in all of this to this day that that gentleman's out of the hospital he's doing fine i mean he's had little issues here and there but as far as i know he's healthy and back home with his family a few days later we had made plans for the funeral and and we planned a memorial service there in texas and decided to have the funeral up in utah where all the rest of her family was and where my family was and she's actually buried in the american fork cemetery we planned this memorial service and to stick to your theme of compassion and connection i realized that lauren had way more of an impact on people than i ever thought and i think that's true for most of us we don't realize how many people we influence and have an effect on until they're gone we filled up that church to there were people standing in the halls I remember when I got up to the pulpit to say something, I, I couldn't believe how many people were there. The connections that she made with other people then benefited us down the road. And the same kind of thinking thing happened at a funeral in Utah. And that one was an even bigger turnout and people standing out in the halls. After two and a half months of being in the NICU, Vance came home when he was perfectly healthy. I had him for the first three or four days all by myself. It was nice to have, have him. He's half warm. To see her and him is, is really fun, especially as he's growing now, he's getting a personality. Some of his facial features you can see are obviously his mom. Some of his attitude is definitely from his mom. <laughs> That's a crazy story for sure. And it's beautiful and it's terribly heart-wrenching. Yeah. Such as some of the most meaningful experiences in life, I think. So how do you have hope for the future and what brings you joy? Again, it goes back a lot to my relationship with God. Whether you believe in God or not, I think it's really important to believe in at least a higher purpose for your life. I've had countless experiences I know for sure that Lauren still exists, that she's somewhere. Back in the day before we had all this technology, you know, I, I talked to my grandpa and, and he served in the military and said when, when he'd ship out, you know, the only way to contact his wife was through letters. And he's on the opposite end of the world. He's down in Fiji or somewhere in the Pacific, you know, and it would take months to get letters. And it might be three or four months till he gets one and then sends one back. And it might be another three or four months until she gets it back home. I, th I think about that and how he, he knew she was alive. He knew she was fine, you know. He still missed her a lot. And there was no way he could communicate with her really effectively other than writing a letter. And that's kind of how it's, it's felt recently as I've, I've come out of the really, really hard stages of grief and the constant just zombie mode where it just hurts so bad you don't you just choose to turn off all feeling and just kind of numb the the way that it feels to me is that i know she's still somewhere it almost feels like maybe she's on the other side of the world somewhere <laughs> maybe vacationing in hawaii you know i just can't talk to her but i know she's still there that brings me a lot of peace and a lot of hope that i know i'll see her again the other thing is that I know God has a plan for all of us. There is purpose to our lives, whether you believe it or not. There is a reason that we're here. That brings me a lot of hope as well. And I know that she died for a reason and that I'm meant to experience this and go through this for a reason. What that is, I don't know all the details of. 
Um, but I know that I can use that to help other people that might be going through something. And hopefully some of your listeners can glean something out of, of what I've experienced, what I've shared. Just with what's happened in my life recently and meeting my now fiance, that whole experience has been a huge testament to me that God still has a hand in my life. With how well my family has accepted my fiance, how well Lauren's family, with the exception of some cousins here and there, but her parents at least have have accepted her with open arms. And that's another another miracle through all of this and something that's really cool to look at in hindsight is my father-in-law lost his first wife hmm. when she was the exact same age as Lauren. They were both 25 and I think three months old, exactly the same age when they died. He didn't have a child like I do, but he went through the same thing. And then he met his wife now, my mother-in-law, just a, a couple of months after his first wife died. They were married a few months after that. I think it was six or seven months after that. They've been on the other side of the table where I'm sitting. My mother-in-law told me she, she understands a lot better why some people felt the way they did and why they did some things. And it's, it's really hard to see someone moving forward when your daughter's, in a sense, kind of left left behind. We, we haven't left her behind because we have the headstone now where, where my wife is buried has my name on it. It has Lauren's name on it, and it's going to have uh, my fiance's name is Kearsley. It's going to have her name on it as well. And then my son's name on the back, and then if we have any kids in the future, there'll be their names on the back as well. In our house that we're going to be moving into soon, I have a credenza that's, its whole purpose is for photo albums, certificates, award, whatever that was attached to Lauren and her accomplishments and our memories of her goes inside this credenza and the drawers are in the cupboards. And then on top, there'll be a picture of her and I got a duplicate organ donor bronze badge that's going to go there as well. And then another one of those, the original, is going to be embedded on. Even though we're we're doing all that to, to show that we still care about Lauren, it's still hard for them. But I know it has helped because uh, my mother-in-law, Jen, said so, is that we've been open with them and haven't intentionally or unintentionally left them out of things. Vance still goes and spends time. My son Vance goes and spends time with them all the time. He'll go over when when Kiers and I want to go on a date or something or go for a trip or something. Sometimes he'll spend overnight with them. So they're still a heavy part of his life. That connection for them with their grandson has been huge with dealing with this traumatic loss of their daughter. That They still have a piece of, of her as well. Really, Vance is everyone's anchor. He's kind of what holds everything together for us. Well, and he's the motivation, yeah. right? There's nothing like a little baby to make someone become a better person. Oh, absolutely. I always say, like, when even when I'm in line with my kids, I'll see someone that's, like, maybe looks a little rough around the edges. And anyways, and, you know, they're all tatted up and piercings everywhere and stuff and looks like they've had a pretty intense life, maybe. They'll look at my kids and they just, like, turn into a different person, start talking <laughs> to my kids. I'm like, oh, you were just, like, sweet and gushy. You're a there. softie. Yeah, you're a softie. <laughs> but absolutely. babies have that power. They do. And he is the cutest kid. I don't care who you are. He should be the Gerber baby. <laughs> I think he every- did turn into the Gerber. <laughs> you just need a little meat on his bones, yeah, right? I think everybody feels that way about, about their own kids, you know. We set up a little social media page for him called Lauren's Little Miracle for people to kind of follow his progress. And that's another thing. There is an astronomically larger amount of people that care about him because of what we've gone through than otherwise would have. And there's people that we don't even know. They've never met that are 
kind of in a weird way really invested <laughs> in my son's progress. Like it kind of weirded me out at first. I'm like, why do you care? <laughs> you know, but again, it speaks to that. The story and what happened is it, it is a heart wrenching thing and it makes people appreciate what they have. Um, their, their family, their kids, their spouses. I just hope people can see, like, I've been through some really, really hard stuff. I was 23 years old when I lost my wife. I didn't plan on that. I didn't plan on being a single dad. I sure as heck didn't plan on being a widower. I didn't plan on having to move back in with my parents so that I could just survive. I stayed in my parents' basement in my old bedroom from high school. And so they could help me watch bands and I could slowly start getting back into the swing of things and getting back to work. And I've had so many people offer me so much help. And it's because of those people and their compassion for me that's, that's allowed me to get back on my feet. I'm back working full-time now. Uh, my fiance cares as she comes over every morning. And I leave Vance with her. And I go to work during the day. And then I come home. And she's there till we go to bed at night. It'll be really nice once we're married and we don't have to do this whole <laughs> swapping thing. And we can just live in the same house together for permanently. To your, your theme for your listeners is, is huge that... The only reason I'm doing as well as I am, like I said, I still have hard days. Specifically yesterday was another one of my sucky days. I left work early because I just couldn't function. But the compassion that people have shown me has helped a lot. And it's helped It's helped me be able to step back enough to look at my own view of myself and my own self-worth. How we view ourselves and where we base our self-worth from is a huge factor in how we get through trials like this. When I lost Lauren, a huge part of who I was was gone. If you think of self-worth as a castle or, or walls that you build around yourself, a lot of what I built was based on the things that I had, the things that I'd accomplished. It was my marriage, my relationship with my wife. It was my job. It was my house and my possession, the, the things that reflected how I provided for my family. When I lost Lauren, almost everything that I built myself worth on had a cannonball go through it. Since then, I've had to start retraining my brain to think positively again, to stop focusing on negative extremes and think of positive realities. My brain now immediately goes to worst case scenario because this situation taught my brain that worst case scenarios can happen. You sound like you've done some PTSD therapy, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) I have. I definitely, one of my good friends, he's a professional grief and addiction counselor. And that was another another thing to compassion and connection. I had that connection with his name's Jason and he offered to have sessions with me free of charge. Wow. So I've seen him at least once a month and I still do that. I used to think counseling, therapy, what have you was kind of taboo and I don't need that. Now that like I said my self-worth had cannonballs go through it. I, he's helped me to be able to see some of that and I think that's a, a huge value with his help. I've been able to start learning where my brain falls when it goes into survival mode and what I needed to do to get back to what I coined as thriving mode. Because before Lauren died, we were thriving. I was doing really well at work. We had a home. We had everything that we wanted. You know, life was pretty much perfect. Like I, did, I had no complaints. All that was taken away. And so with work, I wasn't performing like I used to, like I did before I even got the promotion. I was not doing too hot. And... My brain starts thinking, okay, well, worst case scenario, I'm going to lose my job. So I got to start preparing for that. I'm a terrible father now because I'm broken and I can't make money. I'm not a provider. So I got to start preparing for what's going to happen to Vance. And I start going into this tornado of negativity and to pull myself out of that. Uh, what Jason had me start doing was every time that I catch my brain going to a negative extreme, 
I replace it with three positive realities. And I step back outside of myself, like, okay, no, what's what's reality here? What's what's really going on in a positive way? When I start getting stressed out, my brain goes to those negative realities. I stop and I think of my th- two or three positive realities of those that situation. I love that because that's such an applicable tool that people listening are like, okay, I can do that even if you've never been to therapy. And I 100% agree with that in my own in my yeah. own healing process. And it, it applies to people that... that haven't been through trauma you know they just struggle with self-worth in general yeah you know they have self-esteem issues whether they've just for some reason learned to think that way through their habits or something else has happened that's kind of triggered that even over the past week or two of doing this i've noticed my brain starting to react on its own with those positive realities you know it's starting that kind of almost muscle memory starting to do that my performance has started to come up a lot there's measurable metrics that i can track for myself that i'm doing better because of what i've been doing If you were to leave a message with people who are in the middle of a struggle, they're not on the other side yet, what would just be some final words you would leave with them? You got to realize that it's not permanent. You're in it and you're probably going to still be in it for a while. I think there comes a point where you got to make a decision. Are you going to allow yourself to stay down in this hole? Are you going to stay in this filth of self-pity and and not to sound rude or, or, or harsh, but... At some point, you've got to pull yourself out of that. And having connections with other people and using their help to do that is crucial, I think. I don't you think have that's, to accept help. You, you have to accept help. And you have to be willing to ask for help when you need it. Mm-hmm. Because That pe- is not the first time that's been said on this podcast by very successful people. You cannot deny help either. Something that I realized was a huge side effect of my own pride was that I'm going to do this on my own. I, I, can, I, can, I can get this done. Telling yourself that you're strong enough to deal with it is definitely healthy, but also realizing that you can't do it alone, you shouldn't do it alone, and you don't have to do it alone. And you also never have done it alone, actually, so... Yeah, you, you never have... We get no, a little big for our britches sometimes. We do. I don't, I don't know everybody's upbringing that, that listens to your show, but I guarantee if they look back at their lives, whether they had a, a healthy family life or not, somebody somewhere has helped them become who they are in positive ways. Negative ways, too, but... Definitely positive ways. And I think that's my message is that if you're in the middle of of a crisis, you got to realize that it will get better, but it's going to take some effort. This isn't permanent if you don't let it be. It's up to you. Take help and ask for help because there's people that want to help you. But if you don't tell them what you need, they can't do anything. You got to be vulnerable enough to allow people to help you and humble enough to accept it. And let people see you. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about seeing other people, but you have to allow yourself to be seen. You, you have to open up to, to somebody. <laughs> you, you can't deal with this on your own. So, yeah, that's that's a really good good way of putting it. you got to let people see you well enough that they can help. Weston, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and yeah. sharing your story and your light. And I'm so glad you are where you are. Yeah. I'm sorry for the things that got you here, but I'm glad you're where you are now. As much as it sucked, I wouldn't change it. Yeah, that's what's weird about crap like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm a stronger and I'm a better person because of it. I hope I never have to deal with that again. Amen. Man, life, yo, it can be crazy sometimes. I love Brandon's vulnerability and driven nature. Thanks again to our fabulous sponsor this week, Utah Homicide Survivors. If you want to hear more about what they do, make sure to go listen to episode 71 on the ICU podcast, this podcast. That's an interview with their founder, Brandon Merrill, who's an attorney. They provide free legal work to family members of murder victims, and it is truly compassionate work that they do. Please go ahead, and if you can, donate to these families in need at utahhomicidesurvivors.org. Thank you guys for listening. I love you so much. My name is Julie Lee, and I see you.